0: You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Folks, we have an exciting collaboration with Homebrewed Christianity, and we want you to be a part of it. Actually, we literally can't do it without you. We want to know the biggest question singular
1: question you have about God, theology, the Bible. So, we made a survey, and as you know, we're big fans of concrete answers around here, so we're going to find the best theologians and
0: scholars to answer those questions. The survey closes, folks, on August 30th, so don't miss your chance to obtain absolute certainty, and go to theonlygodordainsurvey.com to submit your question. And our topic today is on repentance and repair, and our guest is Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg.
1: Yep, and Danya is a scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women, and she actually has a new book out called On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. And I know this is kind of cliche to say, but it's particularly true here that it's a very timely book because of so much happening in the last, I would say, handful of years. Yeah. social media. And how we talk to each other, and how we offend each other, and how we, uh, you know, repent from that. How we say we're sorry, apologize. All of that is what we talk about today. So I thought it was very relevant, and from a particularly Jewish perspective, was even more refreshing.
0: Yeah, and you know, I can't recommend the book enough. It's it is timely. It's really clear, and it's got some ideas that, yeah, I guess Jared. In in the Christian world, we don't always think about things the same way that Judaism has thought of things and there's wisdom to be found serious wisdom to be found that i think goes well very much beyond finding bible verses to sort of what how do we handle this issue today well let's go to bible verses so right.
1: but um, also still very practical very like practical, very concrete
0: very concrete very practical and yeah just It's almost as if how you act towards other people matters. Exactly. You know, go figure.
1: All right, let's talk about repentance and repair. What is
2: the harm and what is an appropriate amends? I don't think we can do this work well if we don't talk about power who has it, who doesn't, and where it sits and how it functions and how it's weaponized. The only people who can forgive harm doers are the people who are harmed by them. When people are doing the work, it's clear. And when they're not, it's also clear.
1: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good.
0: So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Hello, Donia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. And, yeah, so let's let's dive right into our topic for today. L- let's start by just getting to know you a little bit. What drove you to be interested in this topic we're going to discuss today about repentance and repair?
2: Well, I've always been a fan of Maimonides' work on repentance. And in Judaism, at the High Holy Days, we talk a lot about this work of repentance every year. And it's really the work of the season. And so, Every year we go into it, and every year I spend time thinking about it, and I've always had an affinity for teaching and thinking and reading and and working on this process. And I got into the process of writing this book shortly after Me Too broke. A journalist I know wrote to me. They were working on a story about the question of, you know, is there a way back for perpetrators of sexual abuse, you know, the the sort of famous people who were just being named, right, as Me Too was exploding, right? You've got, you know, Louis C.K. and, oh, geez, I don't even remember, Um, you know, like this list of famous dudes whose, whose names weren't right, you know, and, you know, like what's what happens after you get named as a perpetrator, then what? And we as a culture didn't seem to know. And so I wrote up a few paragraphs of, you know, kind of my thoughts on this, using the Jewish tradition and, and our thinking on on how to do repentance work and what the steps are and what the the work is for accountability and repair. And, you know, as these things go, you know, they my friend used just like a little snippet of what I said in the piece. And when the piece came out, I was like, you know what, I'll just tweet out the whole thing that I said, because maybe it'll be interesting to people. I don't know. That's kind of my relationship with Twitter, you know, here, (laughs) want something. And so I just did a little thread of like, it started like, I want to talk about the difference between repentance and uh, atonement and forgiveness. And people went bananas. And it hit me that people in our culture didn't have a vocabulary for this. Uh, and that there wasn't a way in most people's worlds to talk about the the how do you do the work of repairing harm and and what are the steps and how do we think about the obligations of the harm doer and what uh, how do we think about the obligations of the person who has been harmed I actually don't think they have many if any obligations but what do we do with this and what are the what are the steps back and do we bring somebody back into the public sphere and do we allow them back into private relationships and who can forgive the perpetrator? Like, can we forgive Louis C.K.? It turns out the only, I mean, in J- Jewish law, the only person who can forgive the perpetrator is the victim. So it's not our job to say when he's done enough repentance work, right? Um, but then... What does that mean for our our culture? How do we navigate that as uh, people who are also affected? Like, his actions impact rape culture. So then what do we do? And so as I started to tease this out, like, in real time on Twitter with people, and then, you know, sort of turned into an op-ed, and that turned into a couple of conversations on NPR, and it it kept hitting this point where nobody seemed to know what to do with that thing that happened in college or this other story in the news or in conversations kept coming up where people felt like they were at a loss. And I kept coming back to, you know, well, Maimonides has these five steps of repentance and here, let me show you. Mm -hmm. And I realized that this, lens that I have grown up with about healing interpersonal relationships actually works on systemic harm and institutional harm and cultural harm, too.
0: Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I right now I'm bursting with about 40 things I want to talk with you about. I want to back up a little bit, though. It, it, it seems that repentance and repair is, is this fair to say, part of like a spiritual rhythm for you? Yes. Okay, that's that alone is something to think about, because I'm not sure, Jared, if that never came up in church, right? (laughs) You know, it's just, it's a a different way of looking at it. And of course, you have a tradition that deals with this, but…
1: Yeah, and maybe could you just say a little more about how within Judaism, this is a a rhythm, uh, and and what does that actually mean?
2: So, in terms of the rhythm, I'll start at at the end point. So, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the biggest holiday in Judaism. And it began as the day when we would cleanse the t- holy temple in Jerusalem of ritual impurity. People who had probably unintentionally shown up with, you're not, you're not bad and wrong if you come into contact with a corpse yeah. Uh, right. Like that's not a. It's not a moral judgment. If you.
0: Yeah. It's not a sin or something. It's
2: right. 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 People talk about pure, impure. It's not a. People take it as a. We talk about. I, I like the translation everyday state and elevated state, better because it it's a little bit less, um, loaded. Mm-hmm. But um, when you go to the temple, you need to do special things to rid yourself of of some everyday state stuff. But if you showed up to the temple with the everyday state things, you might kind of muck up the status of the temple. So it's this purifying ritual to remove, to, to kind of wipe clean this space. And after the temple fell, it became a space, a, a time to wipe out yourself clean, your, your, your soul clean, your connection with the divine got refreshed, rebooted, renewed. But you can't do that. If you have, and the way you, if you have been, if you've done harm in your relationship with God, this is the time you have to kind of like go make amends with God (laughs) to get clean. (laughs) So, you know, if I'm in like breaking Shabbat in private, you know, just me and God, or I've been, you know, whatever, my my spiritual commitments to the divine, like this is my time to get right with God, right? To be get back and become the person that I'm supposed to be. But if you harm another person, Yom Kippur is not going to do that work until you make it right with the other person. Mm-hmm. And so this work of repentance and repair then becomes built into the season. And so Rosh Hashanah, 10 days before Yom Kippur is the Jewish New Year, and so that sort of kickstarts the intensity of this season, and the month before Rosh Hashanah, the the whole month of Elul, becomes this time of starting to take stock and be like, who was I this year? What did I do? Oh, geez, I have some work to do, and you start to hopefully, if you haven't been cleaning up your messes all year, which you should be doing, and I hope that I can be making the case for, in my book, I hope I can be making the case for (laughs) repentance work as a regular spiritual practice and not something you just do once a month, you know, once a year that you have like this month and then intensive 10 days of doing doing it. But definitely in the Jewish world, like we all do the taking stock stuff and the reaching out stuff and the sheepish phone calls to people we have hurt and trying to make things right, uh, you know, that's part of our culture.
1: Yeah. You you mentioned a few times earlier in our discussion Maimonides, and it seems like that's central to your perspective on repentance and repair. Particularly, it sounds like he has these five steps. So, can you just give us a broad introduction to Maimonides and then maybe walk us through those five steps?
2: So, Maimonides was a medieval physician philosopher, legal genius and many other things. And he his big innovation is that he took a lot of the Jewish insights and wisdom and law that was spread all over the Talmud, which is an amazing, extraordinary but winding and kind of difficult to navigate if you're not an expert. A compendium of rabbinic culture and he organized it. He kind of, you know, instead of like these complicated discussions where people are arguing about what to do, he was like, okay, what's the bottom line? What are you supposed to do? Because most people, like the scholars are going to study the Talmud and regular people just need to know what to do. And so he kind of took the what to do and organized it in a different way. So part of his reorganization included creating this category called the laws of repentance. And so suddenly, you have all of these ideas about repentance that are scattered all over the place, and he's reorganized them. And in his reorganization, he comes up with what I argue are five steps of repentance. It's actually, you know, like 10 chapters of of stuff, but I think there are five distinct steps. And they are, number one, confession, a.k.a. own what you did, right? Own it fully. No hedging, no, like, but I really meant well, but it wasn't that bad, but na-na-na in my defense. Like, just own it. I did it, I said this thing, it was really racist. Like, no, like, I didn't know any better. Like, just, I, you know, uh, if I had respected women, I never would have treated my employee this way. Like, just own it, right? Say it at least as public as the harm, right? If you said the racist thing in a staff meeting, you need to do the confession at least in the staff meeting it, or on Slack or, you know, like everybody who's witnessed to the harm needs to see the confession. If you posted a bad tweet, you need to post a confession, but it's praiseworthy to do your confession publicly because it's a way of asking for help. It's accountability, Right. It's saying, uh, like, I'm here on my anti-racist journey. I need you to sort of compassionately support me as I'm moving through or um, I'm trying to stay sober. And so, you know, but like it's a way of of telling the community that you're trying to change and that you need their help. So step one, confession. Step two, uh, starting to change. Today, Like then it was like prayer, supplication, giving alms to the degree you can, exiling yourself from the place of harm. So today that would be, you know, dump the friends that are the, your toxic influence. Is it therapy? Is it rehab? Is it meditation? Is it prayer? Is, is it calling your sponsor? Is it spiritual direction, right? Like there are all sorts of different ways we can start to do the work. Is it education on anti-racism work, right? What is the thing you need to do to start becoming somebody who doesn't do the thing? I don't know, what did you do, right? What, what needs to happen so that it won't, won't happen again? So that's, and it's ongoing, right? Depending on what the thing is and how serious, but it's presumably gonna be going on for a while. But step two, start to change. Step three is amends. So, if I stepped on your foot, I need to pay your doctor bill. Do I need to pay for the time you missed uh, when you left? When you had to miss a few days of work, and so you missed a few days of payment, and so I need to pay for your also for your work compensation. Do I need to pay you for your suffering in addition to that? Right in Judaism, there are five categories of harm for a physical impairment? Do I need to donate money to an appropriate organization? Do I need to donate time? Do I need to spend the rest of my life becoming an advocate for systemic change around sexual violence in my community? I mean, what is the harm? And what is an appropriate amends? Ideally, this is in conversation with the victim, right? We don't decide for a victim what their amends are. hmm Right. The, the amends have to be what the victim needs if the victim is there and actively participating in the process. So, again, it depends on the harm, but something that will be not rendering. It's not as though the harm never happened because the harm is always going to be there, but it is something that can at least work to repair that breach mm-hmm. to whatever des- extent is possible. And then
0: an yeah. apology. Uh, can I interject something very quickly uh, 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 yeah, before we get to the list, too? But just to my untrained ear, some of this sounds like Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. right? And and so you, you agree. I, I love the whole idea of just listen. You got to just come clean. What did you do? Yes. And you have to. You, you one of the steps. I forgot what step it is, but you 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 go to make amends. You actually go to the people physically, yep. uh, people that you harmed through your addiction. So, I, just, I it's just, it might be a point of contact for people. That's the only reason I bring it up, just to, to mention that. There seemed to be some, uh, a collective wisdom here in how to deal with the harm that your actions may have brought to other people and how to repair relationships.
2: As I've been working on this, it's been really interesting to see where some of this work Echoes other approaches to repairing harm. AA definitely, you know, AA, like, and and it's not, you know, there with everything. There's places for critique. AA has been critiqued in some ways and is really amazing in some ways and does does things that uh, Maimonides, uh, you know, the 11th century did not address. But AA really fills in some really important gaps and then other. Approaches that do other things. Some of the things that happen in Native American tribal courts feel very resonant with Maimonides' approach to me. You know, and it's not because everybody knew everybody else, it's just because there are, I think, some intuitive truths about how to heal. And they involve telling the truth, they involve making amends, they involve knowing that. Part of the work uh, after you have caused harm is figuring out how you become the kind of person who doesn't do that harm again, right?
0: Well, I interrupted you. So let's, uh, the the last two of Maimonides' five steps, we were about to get to the fourth when you started mentioning apology.
2: Right. So we've got confession, we've got starting to change, we've got amends, and then we finally get to apology. And you might wonder why we haven't gotten there until now. And the answer is, if you were the person who hadn't yet really faced down what you did, if you were the person who hadn't yet begun to do the deep work of changing, or at least starting to change, and really engaging it, like that apology is going to come out really different than if you're the person who has Already started to do the work of grappling and engaging and getting what you did and finally understanding like really how what the harm is and how it may have impacted the other human being.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like yeah. the apology that goes like, I'm sorry if you felt this way. Right. That's sort of a okay. cheap apology instead of like right. if you've gone through the paces of those first three stages You won't say that. (laughs)
1: Well, it's almost a level of empathy when you've gone and actually taken the time to truly understand the harm that you've caused. And that takes you being responsible for educating yourself, making these changes, making the confessions. I feel like it gives time to take responsibility. There's a depth there of empathy rather than, I don't really know exactly what I did or what harm I caused, but I'm going to say I'm sorry anyway.
2: Right. Right. Exactly. And and by the time you get to apology – Uh, You're not saying it because you're supposed to say it. You're saying it because it really matters to you that you hurt the other person, and you want to say the words that you can say to try to make it better, right? Because that's what you've got, right? And then we get to the fifth step, which is making different choices next time. And my rabbi, Rabbi Ellen Liu, used to say, "Well." what do you mean next time? How are you ever going to find yourself in the exact same situation as the one where you caused harm? And then he would sort of pause and chuckle in his little, you know, Brooklyn accents. Then say, like, (laughs) if you don't do the work to change, you're always going to find yourself back in that same situation. Whether that's because you haven't worked out your anger issues or because you're, you know, ambivalence in relationships or you're you know trying to do power over people or you know like whatever it is you're just going to keep uh, unconsciously manifesting that same pattern someplace else so
0: yes. well i mean one thing that's really striking to me and call me captain obvious here but to do what you're talking about i'm i'm not trying to cheaply contrast this to christianity because christianity is itself a very diverse phenomenon and people disagree about things all the time having said that this takes a community to do what you're talking about Mm. and i think at least christians in the west and I'm, i'm assuming jared that you could concur with this it is it gets sort of individualistic that you sort of pray to god and then you do that sort of apology thing maybe but it's sometimes things are kept a secret and it's just between me and that person. No, this involves a whole community. And, and when you do these acts in public, it really makes a difference. And I see that as um, maybe something that's missing in certain iterations of the Christian faith
1: is there a question in there no you
0: just, just the, a comment no the what do you think of that
1: <laughs> i love i love it i just a, we, this is i hope gets edited out but Danya, i love it because pete often will just end with a thought a thought and then just leave it there so i'm glad you didn't take the bait you just and it's then like, you're okay, supposed a to question? say wow pete, that's a great insight <laughs> you're supposed to say pete that was that was so insightful <laughs> You're so wise.
2: <laughs> I mean, I was I, I thought it was directed at you. I'm like, you know, over here trying to diplomatically stay in my lane.
0: <laughs> I was doing—I was just doing personal therapy there for a second, yeah. but anyway. Well, can so. I
1: can I ask a question off of that then? Yeah. Because I think the question is—I I mean, I would have this question based on the what you are both saying, which is how do we do this? Why isn't this, if I can play kind of the American individualistic card, why is this a communal thing? And, you know, you've, uh, Danya, have mentioned the public nature of it. And I really ap- appreciate the kind of the, the, the rule of the, the confession should be as public as the offense. And I like that as a general uh, rule. But what makes this communal and why is that important?
2: It's communal because we need each other. And because we live in in communities, and I think the individualism of America bites us in the tush more than it doesn't, honestly, in so many ways. But certainly with this, there's, uh, there's studies that say that basically countries that have a more communitarian ethos tend to rate higher on empathy scales than countries that have a more individualistic ethos. And when they rate the countries, you know, America's like way over on the individualistic side, Um, way low on the empathy scale, right? Because we, we have this mentality of everybody for themselves. And so then when harm happens, we don't have that sense of, well, we all have to take care of each other. It's just like you're left alone kind of nursing your wounds, and nobody's going, are you okay? Nobody's going, hey, somebody tracked down, you know, so-and-so. They need to come, uh, you know, back and, and be in, in relationship with this other person. And there's a, there's a line from the book. There's a, a tribal elder who serves as a, a judge in a, in a tribal court, who Joseph, Judge Joseph flies away. And he says that when harm happens, it is the harm doer uh, acts uh, like they don't have any family. Right? Like somebody who causes harm is in this world acting like nobody's checking up on them. Nobody cares about them. Nobody's does nobody's going to care if they are acting like their best selves or they're not best selves right nobody's going to help them grow nobody cares if they grow if they thrive or if they're uh, you know fallen off the the path right and and certainly the person who has been harmed you know if we're not in a communal space nobody's taking care of them And that sense of accountability of of that image of, you know, kind of like a a community of people surrounding both harm doer and the person who's harmed saying, hey, wait, wait a second. We need to pause and discuss what happened. Like, that's really important. And Maimonides has a whole thing. I mean, it's from the Talmud that if you apologize once and the victim is, like, not having it, then you have to come back with three people and apologize again. And if the victim is still not having it, you have to come back with three more people, and then, you know, and three more people. And it's, I think it's it's like your accountability team, where those people are like watching how the apology's going and they're like watching body language, like, you know, kind of, dude, I can't believe you said it that way. Let's like do a little uh, post-game Dissection of how that went, or maybe they're there to support the victim, or maybe they're there to kind of navigate between the two parties and make sure everything's going smoothly, or or whatever. But there's a sense of like sometimes we need other people to help us navigate really complex situations. We can't do it
0: alone. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than ten thousand different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in...
0: That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you
1: at Union Presbyterian Seminary for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on the Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu. Or email admissions at upsem.edu.
1: Speaking of that kind of the communal piece of that, I wonder how do we, you know, manage this in a in a, a public sphere? I guess my concern is when we talk about this, and I, I'm speaking from the Christian tradition growing up. When there's like this call for repentance and things, those who I just think there's a there is a disparity where really when you ask someone to apologize more or do repentance better the people who maybe catch on to that and think oh I should do it maybe aren't actually the people who really need to hear it because they're the ones who apologize for taking up space apologize for speaking i'm sorry they're constantly saying i'm sorry usually women and they're like over-apologizing and then the people who really need to hear this message are kind of like, well, I don't have anything to apologize for. They're they're sort of not empathetic to the ways that they are causing harm. How do we, do you have any ideas on how we can direct this message, you just talked about accountability and and having this communal sense of that. How can we do that better where we're drawing attention to the places where this needs to happen more and letting off the hook the people who, not that we should do it less, but I just know there's a lot of people who maybe take it to heart in a way that I'm like, "Uh, actually, I would appreciate if you apologize less, Um, (laughs) you you know, because you you don't need to apologize for existing. So, how do we do that, I, I guess, as a culture, as communities?
2: I don't think we can do this work well if we don't talk about power. Who has it and who doesn't and where it sits and how it functions and how it's weaponized, right? When a lot of times when people are pushing for forgiveness, we can look at who has been harmed and who is causing harm and how comfortable it would be if somebody would forgive and let a harm doer off the hook and how nice that would be and how it would maintain the status quo and not challenge the status quo, right? The, You know, we're going to forgive the donor who sexually harassed the employee, and then we can keep soliciting funds. Or we're going to forgive the cop who shot the unarmed black motorist, so then we don't have to ask any hard questions about the function of this, you know, policing in the state, Right when, uh, you know, we have to talk about power and we have to push people who have power to accountability. And it's really just that simple. And it is not clear to me that a lot of people who are very, very attached to the power that they hold are going to do their accountability work
0: Willingly. You've noticed that too, huh? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, tying into this specifically, uh, in your book, you mentioned that uh, American society isn't really very good at doing the work of reparation and repentance. And we're talking about an individualistic way of thinking of, you know, your place in the world. Could you elaborate more on what might be… I guess some of the seeds of that in in the American experience, why we don't look at ourselves truly as co- as a community, but as maybe more individuals that live together that have rights and we keep impinging on each other's rights and things like that.
2: Well, I, you know the there are a lot of of different seeds. There's definitely, I mean, you know, there's sort of the capitalism, right of the the sense of of the the one who holds the free market power gets to decide whether or not it is in their self-interest to do repentance work or not. Um, And that sort of misreading, as far as I understand, from people who know Adam Smith better than I do. But evidently it's a misread of Adam Smith to go into the sort of, it's my self-interest, to union bust, and... Force people to work in unsafe conditions uh, during COVID and make billions of dollars while they are on starvation wages, right?
0: So, I mean, not to be um, simplistic, though, Don, is that would you say that like greed?
2: <laughs> right. I, I mean, like, I mean like, like just that's to give the, it a you know, name, like the, like the greed ethos of, of capitalism, right? And the exploitation is certainly a thread here, and okay. that count, uh, you know that. And it, but the the way our market is set up disincentivizes the work of those in power to do self accounting because why would they? because then they would just lose power and money um and you know, and we can talk about white supremacy if you would like. If you want to go there, we can
1: well i I want to make sure we have time to I think a big kind of elephant in the room, at least for me, is you know, we talked about repentance and repair on it, on kind of one side of the equation. But I'm curious, in, and maybe this is a little passe now to talk about kind of cancel culture, but how do we bring people back into, you, you started our conversation by asking those questions of like how and when do we bring people back into the public sphere? And what does it look like then to give them positions again of influence and status again? And when do, we, do they need to be relegated? And I, I just, I think there's a lot of, uh, chatter that's frankly pretty uninformed about this, not you know deeply rooted in a tradition, not having kind of all these ethical principles behind it, but just everyone's opinion. So I'm just curious how you think through it within this framework.
2: Most of the, so first of all, let's be clear, most of the people that are allegedly canceled are actually thriving financially and professionally. Right. And B, the act of so-called cancellation is mostly just capitalism <laughs> right people people saying we are not going to buy your music anymore is just making a market choice <laughs> honestly so fine <laughs> like we're going to buy this music and not that music right this netflix has dropped your thing because you are no longer desirable to the market like That's actually just capitalism. So people should need to calm down. That's number one. Number two, people are absolutely entitled to make moral choices about whose work they support and whose work they don't support. And to say that if someone is propagating ideas that they find harmful, that they're allowed to speak up loudly against that. That is, I think, absolutely fair. I want to make that clear. And we have a path of repentance. And when people are doing the work, we know exactly what to look for. Rabbi Yosef Blau was complicit in helping a perpetrator, a, a horrific perpetrator, go back to work with uh, young adults with teenagers and kids and when he understood what he did he started to dedicate the rest of his life to advocating for safer policies in the orthodox world, to working to create safer spaces to fighting for victims' rights right to passing bills for survivors like he's is a tireless advocate for survivors of sexual abuse and to creating spaces where there will not be sexual abuse in his community Survivors know that he is on her, their side When you do the work when you mean it, it's pretty clear Louis C.K. on the other hand, you know issued this apology about how he was listening and learning from the experience of being named as an abuser and then you know, took six or nine months off and then went straight back into the ego-stroking limelight that made it so easy for him to perpetrate harm in the first place. When people are doing the work, it's clear. And when they're not, it's also clear. A- and again, the only people who can forgive harm doers are the people who are harmed by them so we, the public, to some degree, shouldn't be weighing in on that. And a victim can harm their abuser. And that also doesn't mean that they are magically entitled to a $300,000 or $300 million Netflix contract or whatever, right? Like doing the work of repentance and being entitled to things that most people don't have, because you were once a celebrity are not the same thing. But if Louis C.K. had suddenly decided to dedicate the rest of his career to fighting rape culture and to empowering women comedians and to using his platform for amazing things with, you know, and doing it mostly behind the scenes and then we find out it's him and da, 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 Like, his relationship to the public would be very different. But those aren't the choices that he made,
0: so it it seems like uh, just because you mentioned Lewis C. k, just to dwell on that for half a second, he went through a process that wasn't really a process. Mm-hmm. it was it was individualistic. I, again, I don't know what he did behind the scenes, but you know, I'll go off here. I'll take a rest. I'll take a time out, and then I'll just come right back. But the community wasn't involved. The public was involved because they know who he is, but they're watching. It's it's not a community. I'm right about this. It's not a community generated act of repentance and reparation.
2: I, I mean, he, what he did to name it publicly because the harm had a public dimension that's appropriate. Did he make everything right with his victims? Did he? You know, do serious amends work? Uh, that's not clear, right? I, I I do not believe so. And certainly the the other side of it, right? the 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 work that he did on the other side made it clear that he had not actually learned a damn thing. So, it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, maybe just one thing I'd like to just touch on because. I, I think this is important for a lot of our uh, listeners who are likely somewhere in the Christian world, right? So, I, I think one thing, it's it's fascinating, maybe you can expand on this just a little bit, how the, the, the strength and wisdom that you're gaining to deal with things that involve repentance and reparation, that. It doesn't come straight from the Bible, so to speak. You know, I think, especially for Protestant Christians, the answer is always someplace in a text, but what I'm hearing from you, and again, correct me if this is wrong, is the, the wisdom, of course, you know, there's there's the long scriptural tradition in Judaism, but you've mentioned the Talmud a few times and not the Bible, Right. So and I'm I'm am is not a criticism. I'm, i maybe just elaborate on the source of wisdom in in Judaism for thinking through complex moral issues.
2: So a little Judaism one oh one, maybe. So we have the Torah. Right, that is definitely our, our home base. It's five books of Moses, and then the rest of the Hebrew Bible is what Christians, you know, kind of mostly what Christians call the Old Testament, though we prefer the the Hebrew Bible as a more...
0: Uh, Not yeah, Christian saying. way of talking about it, right? <laughs>
2: well, yeah, you know, like when you guys say Old Testament, it, it uh, implies... It's a little superstitionist, put it that way.
1: Well, and also maybe doesn't do justice to the fact that it's uh, different books in different orders and historically…
2: Well, right. I mean, you know, there's that, but I, I just want to say that, you know, Old Testament, uh, even when, when Christians say Old Testament, it implies that it, our books aren't perfectly fine on their own and exist as an independent tradition. And when Christians say Hebrew Bible, it gives them a little more dignity, gives Judaism a little mm-hmm. more dignity. Um, anyway, so we have, you know, Torah and, and, and Bible and stuff, but then we have r- the rabbinic tradition, which is really the foundation of Judaism, which is how we read and understand what to do with Torah in our lives, right? Torah says keep Shabbat, but like, what does that mean? Uh, what do you do, what do you not do? So then we have the oral Torah, which is an ancient oral tradition that got written down, codified, around uh, 150-200 CE. That's called the Mishnah. And so the the Mishnah says, like, well, here are the 39 categories of things you don't do on Shabbat. And then, you know, ba-da-da-da-da. And then what we call the Talmud is rabbis figuring out, like, okay, well, when it says no plowing, what does that mean if I drag a bench? Does that mean I, you know, I didn't mean to plow, but it made a little furrow. Did I plow or not? And then they fight about whether or not you actually broke Shabbat. And we decide. And then Maimonides is like, well, here's the answer, right? And this is how Judaism has, has evolved. Um, so these are all our holy texts. I, you know, it's, it's we're people, live, like these are all our sacred texts. So we have Yom Kippur in the Torah. And there's all sorts of stuff. The high priest confesses his sins onto the goat. And then the Mishnah says Yom Kippur doesn't work if, unless the person who, if you have sinned against your friend, uh, Yom Kippur is not going to do the magical atonement. Not Yom Kippur is not going to do the powerful, profound, extraordinary, alchemical work of atoning for you if you haven't made things right with the person that you hurt. So then we're like, oh, okay, well, how do we do you know, and then so then the Talmud elaborates, what does that mean? How do we do it? What does that look like? And then Maimonides collects all of this wisdom and puts it in order. So it's it's text. Yeah. It's, it's so much text.
0: I mean, a way can I a way of putting it, and and this is Again, I'm, I'm using language that I'm used to here. What, what I'm hearing is that the wisdom comes from the ongoing living tradition. Yes. It's not It's not simply codified in Torah as, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I really need you to respond to this. As times change, as circumstances change, the application of Torah requires an advancement of the tradition, so to speak.
2: Yeah, for us, and, and I think this is something that that a lot of, of Christians struggle to understand, so I've, I'm really grateful for you sort of bringing this, surfacing this. We don't sort of do Torah in isolation, and remember, for us, Jewish practice is is mitzvot, is, is actually doing the commandments. But what does that mean? And what does that do? What are we supposed to do and not do? And what does that look like is always evolving. And how we live the beautiful, exquisite, sacred, spiritual practice of mitzvot in our lives today is always, you know, it's a, it's a growing, evolving tradition. And how we understand and interpret what the words of Torah means is, I mean, the, the practice of studying Torah, it, like that's the core spiritual practice of Judaism is studying Torah and interpreting Torah and reading Torah and going from the Mishnah to the Talmud to Maimonides to, you know, and I can list all of uh, (laughs) mostly dudes until recently, but uh, there have been a few women, you know, and then, you know, and and we say every generation receives the Torah anew, right? It's always, you know, what does, you know, what does Jewish law say about IVF? Well, okay, well, if we look at this and the da 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 and the tabi da ba you know, we have to start with the text that we have, and then we extend and, and make sense of it based on the information we have. So, yeah, it's it is a living, breathing process of of bringing the Torah into our lives today. And what I hope I've done with Maimonides is made is brought him into the twenty first century to to make it uh, so that people can see how Maimonides is speaking to. To our 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 lives, our dilemmas at work, to uh, you know some of the greatest intractable problems in our country now. Because I, I think he's I I think he's talking to them, but you wouldn't see it clearly if you're just opening up uh, the Mishnah Torah, his book. So you need an interpreter, right?
1: Right, and I think that's a, a really wonderful sentiment to end on because I think it touches on this deeper issue that, you know, I can't speak for you, Pete, but I know for me, early on in in our studies, I I would have had that sense that we're missing something in terms, in in the Christian um, way that we handle our Bible. And I think that's what's become clearer and clearer over the years for me is that, is that scaffolding of the living tradition that helps us bring into modern conversation these ancient texts in a way that touches on them without, it's. there's something very stilted and and I would almost say disrespectful to those texts when we don't have that scaffolding and we don't respect the living tradition. So, I think it's a really great um, thought to end on and something I think a lot of our listeners will be helped by as sort of how do we do this now um, in our tradition in a way that, you know, I, I would have grown up actually not only not having that but being very anti-tradition because it's always going to be you know not as good as just going to the text which of course all that means is we just have our interpretation we're just not self-aware
0: about it we're creating our own mini uh living tradition of that sense right know? but it doesn't go back two thousand years it goes no. back like 20 it goes years back to <laughs> my, what i ate last night <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> that's very important there's a lot of
1: fun <laughs> <in> there. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dania, for coming on and uh, giving us so much to, to chew on. And it, it's just such a refreshing and different perspective on some of these things that I think, for me, have been very helpful.
2: Thank you.
3: You just made it through another entire episode of The Bible for Normal People. Well done to you. And well done to everyone who supports us by writing the podcast, leaving us a review, or telling others about our show. We are especially grateful for our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. And a big thanks to Joan Goodman, Fred Fouth, Eileen Kaywood, Rob Buckingham, Peter Hack, A. Todd Rivetti, Scott Skiles, John C. Bruss, Angela Smith, and Christopher Zinner. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support.
0: Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, Audio Engineer Dave Gerhardt, Creative Director Tessa Stultz marketing director, Savannah Locke, and web developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. And our topic today is on repentance and repair and I just sucked <laughs> air into my <laughs> lungs. Yeah, we're going to do that again. <laughs> that How did that weird. even happen? Yeah, it's dude. like my throat just yeah. closed up. Just like a <gasps> <And> <laughs> <laughs> Pete's dead. Pete's dead. All right. Okay, let's it try it again. Oh, Dave, whatever you do with this, I'm going to kill you. How does that sound? Okay. Donya, welcome to our... Well, I'm going to start over again because I just forgot. That's
1: the first time you've ever messed I up an forgot intro. English
0: for a second there. <laughs>